Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so that you can be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Greetings, Allison. In this week's episode, we're going to focus on China and learn more about what's behind the fears of a trade war and the possible impacts on us as consumers and investors. And we've got help from Scott Kennedy from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, way back in 2015, we did an episode about summer reading recommendations, and I suggested one of my all-time favorite personal finance books called Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez, which came out in 1992. So it was a while ago. And I knew that Joe Dominguez died in 1997, but that Vicki Robin was still alive. And about once every year, I thought, like, I should contact her and maybe interview her and see how her life has turned out. Well, fortunately, Money Magazine did the work for me because they just published a profile about Robin. And it was entitled, A Growing Cult of Millennials is Obsessed with Early Retirement. This 72-year-old is their unlikely inspiration. So the article basically tells about how Robin was laid up in bed with some sort of injury relatively recently, surfing the internet and finding out that she's actually become this sort of icon to the FIRE community. FIRE meeting, financial independence, retire early. Um, And the other good news is that she's working on a new edition of the book, which is actually coming out later this month. So that's very exciting. So in terms of the profile, it turns out that she currently lives alone in Washington above two tenants whose rent more than covers her housing expenses. And that's one of the principles of the book is that find some way to cover your living expenses through real estate. So it all started out with her back in her early 20s, back in the 70s, living very frugally with this, what they called an intentional community. Very groovy. Um, She had a little bit of an inheritance. She was also doing some acting work, and she met Joe Dominguez, who quit his job in Wall Street at age 30 and was able to do it basically by just living very, very cheaply and very simply. And the foundation of the book and the philosophy is that basically you're trading portion of your life away to earn money. And then you then use that money to buy things. And you think of your spending that way. So if you earn, let's say, $500 a day, and you go out and buy something that's $250, was that worth half of your day for that? There are nine steps in the book. A big part of it is tracking all of your spending, lining it up, with what they call your life energy. So it does get a little groovy here and there. But basically saying, if you look at, for example, how much you spend on going out to eat, how much you had to work to do that, was it worth it to you? The article in Money Magazine then goes on to talk a lot about the FIRE community. And I realized this when I did my class for Financial Health Day, which was about basically tips and tricks and life hacks on how to cut down your spending. Which, I mean, it really is this growing cult of people who are trying to retire by their 30s or 40s, by while they're working, they earn a lot of money. A lot of these people tend to be like engineers and computer science folks, so they are making a good living, but they're saving a lot of it, living very simply. Then they quote unquote retire, and I put the quote unquote because they're often still doing some sort of part time work, but it's work that they enjoy. So the article is also fascinating talking about that whole 
community because there are all kinds of varieties of it. But for when I taught my class, I, mean, I just came across, there are literally hundreds of blogs and websites of people who have decided to do this. So probably the big, most well-known is Mr. Money Mustache. There are plenty of others like retirearlyhomepage.com, Distilled Dollar, Millennial Money Man, uh, Retire by 40, uh, and The Minimalists. And I highlight them because they have a great documentary on Netflix that anyone wants to check out. But basically, these are two guys who are also sort of engaged in the rat race in the 20s, and then they realized it just wasn't worth it, and they decided to completely simplify their lives. It's a pretty, pretty cool little story. So, are you going to quit your job, The Molly Fool, and go join this cult and no. retire? Well, see, that's very, it- it's very interesting. They had some good quotes in there about how some people basically flame out from it because they love this idea of, like, I'm going to quit my job, and then I'm going to home brew my own beer and work on a farm, and then they do it for like a year, year and a half, and they realize it's kind it's of like, lonely ugh. work. And it's yeah. hard work, so they go back to their jobs. So we've talked about this before. I mean, for me, I'm just type, I'm the type of guy who's probably always going to be working. Whether I work full-time forever, I don't know. But I do love the idea of being very intentional with your spending so that because you are giving up some time that you spent to earn that money, was it worth that time? With a job like this, why would you want to retire, bro? You what? get to sit in a room with me once a week. That is, it's so true. It's so true. <laughs> 60 years from now, we'll be sitting there. Oh, 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 you put it that way. Uh. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLS, consumeraccess.org number 3030. I love to get you on a slow boat to China all to myself alone so the threat of a trade war with china has been dominating the headlines and we wanted to dig into the topic a bit more and understand what exactly is going on here the possible impact on a trade war what could it have on us as investors and consumers and we also wanted to get an expert opinion on investing in China and just business in China as well. So, we went outside the fool for it. And we have brought into the studio today Scott Kennedy. He is the director of the Project on Chinese Business and Political Economy for the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is a nonpartisan foreign policy think tank here in D.C. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks. <laughs> so, uh, I am a little bit out of my depth here in talking about global foreign policy and trade. Uh, so I'm just going to caveat that my questions could uh, maybe not be great. But we're I, th- try I our think best. they'll be fine. Thanks. Well, we're going we're gonna to try our best here for Allison to pretend like she knows what she's talking about. So, Scott, before we get into the policy of this, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your background? Um, sure. I've been working on China for 30 years now. Uh, first went there as a, uh, a college student in the late 80s um, and um, have stuck with it ever since. Once you get addicted to China, it's hard to give it up. <laughs> and so, um, and most of the rest of my family are business in business. And um, I decided that the thing that I would fo- focus on is the intersection of politics and business in China, which I've been doing since. Um, and for me, the best 
part of my job uh, that I like the most is talking to people, um, interviewing people. Usually I'm on the other side of the microphone, and I'm doing it in China with uh, Chinese uh, companies, engineers, lawyers, investors, the government officials, they lobby, uh, sometimes foreign companies. Um, and so uh, luckily I get to keep doing that. Uh, now I was a professor for 15 years uh, at Indiana University in the Midwest, but I am from D.C., grew up here, and so uh, came back to D.C. just a few years ago, and nothing's changed uh, in the time I left. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to get into investing more generally in Chinese uh, businesses and companies and just kind of what the climate is like like out of there. Learn learn from what you've learned from going over there and interviewing businesses. Uh, But for now, let's focus on what's been in the headlines, and that's, of course, been the threat of a trade war. Um, And so for a brief history... Do we should we talk about Smoot Hawley because that was in the 1930s and so I can't tell if that was the last trade war or if people just like to talk about it because it has such a fun name. Like is it is it relevant? <laughs> is it relevant it, for us to talk wasn't about it in that? Was Bueller's Day Off too? It was Bueller. Bueller. Is it relevant for us to talk about this in light of what we're going through now, or is it not a history repeating itself sort of situation? I think we've got something that's a little bit different uh, than. Then I think people like to talk about it because uh, the Smoot Hawley, Smoot Hawley, because uh, it came um, in the early 30s, uh, just after the stock market crashed, and we were looking for ways to revive the economy, and so we we had the very smart idea of uh, restricting government spending and um, uh, monetary policy and uh, putting up trade barriers uh, to help us against uh, trading partners and the combination of those things uh, didn't help. Quite the opposite. This situation is a little bit different because what we're talking about is uh, we're in a moment actually when the American economy and the global economy actually is growing relatively fast, uh, partly because we've had tax cuts, but generally because um, we've um, figured out how to get beyond the global financial crisis of a decade ago. Uh, but we're facing a – but we've got other challenges. Uh, we've got the challenge of globalization and the effect that it's had on um, manufacturing, on um, income uh, gaps between rich and poor, and the rise of China at the same time. And the thought that China's rise is a factor affecting um, the gap between rich and poor and manufacturing – and so the the reason that we're talking about and perhaps going to launch into a trade war, sort of a different type of origins than we had in the 30s, and I'm ha- happy that it's different environment. <laughs> <laughs> so Trump is saying that Chinese companies have an unfair advantage over American, uh, a trade deficit of 500 billion a year, intellectual property theft of 300 billion a year. Can you explain exactly what he's accusing China of doing? Sure. Um, It's probably not going to surprise most listeners that occasionally the president engages in some hyperbole. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) And so um, the specific numbers you just mentioned, which he has mentioned on occasion, aren't exactly true. And but I read it on Twitter. And so it must be true. But I read it on the internet. Let's um, uh, take uh, the listeners of the podcast down a a crazy road of of some alternative facts that they might want to. Uh, listen to and then weigh against what they see on on Twitter. But I would say, yes, uh, largely the president is right 
in spirit that uh, we have an unfair relationship with China. That uh, it hasn't always been that way. I think uh, when China joined the WTO, it made a genuine effort to adapt and uh, modify its uh, tariffs, uh, reduce non-tariff barriers, uh, and it spent about a decade trying to do that. It didn't do it perfectly, of course. It tried to learn the rules of the system, both the good ones and the bad ones that help you uh, game the system. But uh, when since Xi Jinping came into power in late 2012, uh, five and a half years ago, China's been on a path to figure out a way around these rules. Uh, a very nationalistic leader, Chinese people don't have a middle name, but if they did, control would be Xi Jinping's middle name. <laughs> He's very much interested in controlling the domestic political environment, China's uh, economy, increasing Chinese global influence. Um, and he's not uh, really interested in what the existing rules of the game are. Uh, and so the Chinese uh, have been very loyally moved away from their commitments. And uh, given the size of China, uh, the size of their financial system, they have um, gone headlong into uh, industrial policy focused exactly on the areas in which the U.S. has comparative advantage in high tech, the most important parts of our economy that provide productivity growth. Um, and so this is now uh, the two economies used to be primarily complementary. Uh, now they're increasingly competitive, uh, and China's competing using unfair practices. And uh, President Obama and others uh, tried to use a um, an approach of sort of patiently pulling China into a rules-based order and hoping that that they would be socialized into that system. It hadn't really worked out as planned, and 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 Trump uh, ran on the campaign promise that he'd be a lot tougher. Uh, and so we are seeing uh, him implement that campaign pledge. Uh, and it's, of course, generating a lot of anxiety amongst everybody. Yeah. So you're saying that his concern, it sounds like you're saying his concerns are legitimate. Um, but is he going about this the right way? Economists hate tariffs. That's sure. what I've been reading in everything. So sure, right sure. in principle, wrong in execution. Sure. Um, I, so I think that, um, he, he's, he's got the general picture right that, that things have been unfair. And that there are consequences for the American economy and the global economy because they have been unfair. Uh, we have a bilateral deficit of China, uh, with China that's not $500 billion, It's about $375 billion trade in goods. If you count services, uh, actually the U.S. has a big surplus in services with China. So the deficit would be closer to about $335 billion a year. It's still a big number. And yeah. it's been getting bigger. And this year it's been getting even larger. Now, the source of that deficit isn't really unfair practices. It's primarily the fact that the U.S. Uh, consumes a lot more than it saves, and it's got to uh, consume from abroad when it, you don't when that's out of balance. And we consume a lot internationally, and China is a big provider. Also, uh, manufacturers have all moved to China, and uh, many things are assembled in China. All of the value of those products, even if only part of the value was created in China, are counted in China's export column. Uh, in our in our imports as well, but nevertheless, uh, things are, are genuinely unfair because China uses industrial policy that promotes domestic Chinese companies ahead of uh, foreign companies that are exporting to China or that are investing in China. Uh, and the scale of China's effort means that it has effect effects not only on 
individual companies that are competing for market share in China, but on global markets. So a great example uh, would be the solar industry, in which China, a little over a decade ago, decided that it wanted to go into the into the sector and through scads of money uh, at the sector and um, the result of its bottomless uh, pit of money being invested is that no one else could survive. So it destroyed the rest of the global supply chain in, in solar uh, and dumped solar on the global market, which for some who, consumers who want cheap solar panels on their roofs was good. Uh, but for the rest of the com- competition, it was uh, highly destructive. And we ended up locking in a type of solar energy uh, system, which wasn't ideal. Actually, there's much better types of ways you could translate sun power into electricity uh, than the type that is commercialized now. And there's a chance that China could do that in many other industries, in semiconductors, in electric cars, in robotics, in AI, all the things that we are betting our future on. Chinese also could use that bottomless well of money and protectionism to crowd out good investors. And so I'm, that's what I'm worried about. I'm not worried about so much any individual company, although I know investors are, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm worried about the health of those business sectors uh, and the vibrancy of the business models, which everyone depends on. And so um, using pressure to try and get China back into the fold um, is definitely risky um, because China's strong. China's got lots of resources. Uh, their president, uh, Xi Jinping, is not have protesters out on the street telling him or lo- lobbying him to say, you know, geez, this trade war is really going to hurt us if you retaliate against the United States. Uh, there's no Motley Fool podcast equivalent <laughs> in China. Uh, not yet. Ra- uh, <laughs> get ra- yeah, that. yeah, I know. Raising worries and concerns about how China might respond. Uh, media is very uh, controlled in China now, particularly compared to before Xi Jinping came into power. So Xi Jinping's domestic political situation allows him basically to whack back without uh, major consequence. So um, that's a, a big challenge for the U.S. So taking China head on like this is quite risky. But I guess I just wanted to emphasize not doing anything is also risky. So um, because we know if we end up in a world dominated by the China model where state funding uh, replaces private sector funding and um, these business models are, are deeply damaged, that's not good for anybody either. So we are in a, in a very difficult position. What are some other options outside of a potential trade war? And I imagine this could lead to a 14-hour discussion. Sure. <laughs> so, so in the simplest terms possible, yeah. are there other options available or sure. um, what, what can we do here? Sure. Well, I, I think it's important for everyone to know that there are multiple elements to what uh, the Trump administration is planning. Um, this um, trade action that the, that the president has started uh, is based on an investigation into China's misappropriation of intellectual property, what's the so-called Section 301 investigation, which refers to a 1974 trade law the U.S. passed. That investigation found that China was unfairly acquiring technology through coerce, coercion of foreign investors in China, not letting uh, foreign companies gain uh, the proper fees for licensing through cyber theft, uh, through unfair investments in the United States that were state-backed. 
the uh, penalties that the president has put forward that he's in the process of potentially implementing, the first of what everyone is talking about is these trade, the tariffs on 50 billion or 100 billion of, of Chinese goods. Who knows? The number keeps evolving. Uh, but it's a, a lot, right? For 50 billion is a lot for me. I don't know about for you guys here, but 50, that's, that's usually above what we get at CSIS on a week, uh, annual basis. Yeah. So, but the other parts are equally of concern, uh, and they should be to, to listeners. The second part is potentially uh, banning or deeply restricting Chinese investment in the United States. And um, in, in 2016, when it was at its peak, it was $46 billion that year in the United States. Last year, it dropped a lot because of China's own financial challenges and a little bit because of American uh, blocking. But that's a lot of money, and the U.S. might deeply restrict that investment and basically say Chinese can only invest in the United States where the U.S. can invest in China, uh, You know, the f- president's favorite word, reciprocity. Uh, that would have a big effect on specific companies um, in the U.S. and China and everyone that does business with them. And that could end up be actually being bigger uh, than the trade uh, tariff. In addition to that, the president's also talked about restricting visas for Chinese that are in um, STEM area uh, and graduate students, undergraduates, and and workers. Um, and visa restrictions would also have a huge effect on on companies uh, here and in, in China. Besides whacking China in these different ways, um, there's other things that we definitely uh, can do. First, we can get the rules better. Um, the WTO's rules are pretty good, but they're not great. We should upgrade those. Um, and the U.S. has been in conversations over the last decade plus to try and make those rules better. First, with all the other WTO members, there was something called the Doha Round uh, that was started in 2001, but basically collapsed in 2008. Uh, we have been in conversations at the WTO about um, rules related to trade facilita- facilitation and harmonization just to make trade easier uh, to get a lot of the bureaucracy and red tape out of the way, uh, an agreement on trade and services. Um, we have talked with regional actors about agreements uh, with Europe uh, over a, a free trade deal. We uh, started a negotiation actually in the Bush administration, carried forward in the Obama administration on an Asia-Pacific agreement called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, which uh, the U.S. finished negotiating in 2015. Uh, and then um, both candidates for the presidency in 2016, uh, Trump and, and Clinton, opposed TPP when they were campaigning, uh, and uh, President Trump withdrew uh, soon after coming into office. Those type of agreements uh, would, would improve, uh, op- would level the playing field, upgrade the quality of the rules of the game, not just in trade, but investment in how state-owned enterprises are dealing, operating. Um, e-commerce, many different places. Um, so I think in addition to potentially needing to push hard on China unilaterally, improving the rules of the game. And then lastly, uh, the, the last part of this is to um, take care of things at home. Um, American infrastructure needs a big, big upgrade. Anyone who lives in the Washington area and has been on the subway knows that or, or 295 yes or the drive in today you know you know your tires will tell you yeah um you know um health care uh we're, we're not finished but uh in any stretch of the imagination in uh, making health care more widely affordable making it portable uh making it uh, more accessible to everybody um 
investing in education, um, not just uh, for universities, but K to 12 for apprenticeship programs and you know things like that Germany has that helps, that fills, provides opportunities for those folks who want to go beyond high school, but perhaps uh, college isn't the right avenue for them. So there's so many different things that we could do at home uh, to, to make our economy stronger, more productive, even not just to compete with China, even if China didn't exist, we need to do those things. So those are the three th- areas I'd focus on. To what degree is the rest of the world worried about China. Are there other countries that are just as concerned about what China is doing? Sure. On the on the trade and commercial front, uh, this is a universal concern. Uh, China's neighbors, uh, Europe, uh, Latin America, Africa, everybody has 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 concerns about China. China is often their number one trading partner, uh, often a big uh, source or target for investment, and everyone has the same stories of course technology transfer or uh, Chinese companies coming in and taking your resources and not uh, caring too much about your workers or uh, other types of bullying and, and unfair practices. This is, this is what, but at the same time, their level of, of uh, willingness to directly confront China isn't the same as the Trump administration's because China's got a lot of leverage. When, you're, when China's your number one trading partner, and the fastest part of growth for many of your companies, uh, even if it's an unfair slice of the cake, it's still a big slice of the cake. And and so that's uh, that, so folks don't really want to confront China head on like this. What they prefer is to use WTO consistent like measures uh, to ask the Chinese uh, more politely to change what they do. But even then, uh, the record is that very few countries uh, sue China at the WTO. Many countries sue the U.S. <laughs> In fact, the U.S. is the number one target. But countries big and small uh, take the U.S. to the WTO. Essentially, only the U.S. and EU take China to the WTO. Everybody else is too scared to do it. So uh, in some ways, what the U.S. is doing um, is representing uh, the globe, taking one for the team, uh, if they do it right. you know, Of course, the U.S. could cut a side deal, which just benefits the American economy. But really, they're standing up for uh, global institutions. Now, it's ironic to say that President Trump, who has criticized the WTO and multilateral system, is, is standing up for the rest of the world in this multilateral system. But nevertheless, it could have that constructive benefit. All right, let's shift and talk a bit more about, um, selfishly, the impact that a trade war could have on us. Uh, first, let's start as consumers. Um, how concerned should I be about uh, the price of bake- bacon? I don't know. People really love bacon, but I don't know. Like, how 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 concerned should I be as a consumer I'm the, I'm about rising Chinese prices? Bacon? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> but bacon may face problems, but turkey bacon is going to be okay. No. And turkey you bacon's know, totally know. fine. You know, like just get used to it. So sorry, no, no. Turkey bacon is not the same. <laughs> everything, everything Rick is going to weigh in. Yes, turkey bacon. Yes, yes. You've been here this whole time, and that's when you soy said. bacon is okay, but not. Uh, okay, I may draw the line there. All right. So, the um, um, in terms of the direct hit that industries are going to uh, are going to face, which then will affect consumers, um, at least in the first cut of products identified for uh, higher tariffs. Uh, that the U.S. first uh, laid out and then the Chinese laid out, um, 
most of these aren't direct consumer-facing products. Uh, the U.S. primarily picked uh, machinery and electrical equipment and stuff like that that as part of China's uh, industrial policy in, in areas of, of high tech um, and that primarily are involve Chinese uh, domestic suppliers. So for, for those of uh, your audience that, that buy construction equipment to build large buildings, you know, maybe they use that in their, in their backyard, uh, it'll be more expensive for them. Uh, if they, you know, Chinese cars will be more expensive uh, for, for folks here. But we don't import a lot of Chinese cars. I don't know if we import any. <laughs> so uh, so there's some things uh, which, uh, you know, minor. Um, there'll be, uh, but if this expands, uh, then I think what you're, the Chinese will, will uh, we and the Chinese will then start talking targeting consumer goods. And those, so there'll be more things potentially at Walmart uh, and elsewhere, uh, clothing, shoes, uh, computers. Uh, you know, Dell assembles lots of their computers in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, most iPhones are fi- our final assembly is, is in China. So there could be some of those products which eventually face higher tariffs uh, and the prices of them go up. Uh, but those aren't the ones that are uh, scheduled at the moment to, to be uh, to, to face the, these these problems. So um, in an interview you gave to The Atlantic, you said that the pain for Americans isn't necessarily going to be felt on the shelves just yet, like you just said, but it could be felt in our portfolios. So as investors, that really hits home for us. How worried do we need to be about our portfolios? I think you need to be very worried about oh, your portfolios. No, yes, yes, sorry. Yes, yes, you know. So it's not going to be a world where you just need to go short, but you do need to be super careful in in a, in a couple ways. I think first of all there's going to be individual companies that are going to be targeted. Um, the Chinese are going to pick companies in a variety of different industries that uh, many are publicly listed uh, companies. So the Chinese have not uh, uh, identified, say they're not going to import any Boeing aircraft, uh, but they've identified that they're not going to that they're going to not import uh, smaller the older 737s, right? Uh, so currently that is about 20. There are about 27 of those planes still on order to be delivered, but there are 250 larger 737s that haven't been blocked. Uh, but if the Chinese move that number a little bit, uh, then Boeing's uh, business uh, in the short term will be affected. And all the companies that supply uh, parts that go into a 737 could end up, you know, the, the Dreamliner. Uh, you can also look at uh, semiconductor companies um, and then agricultural firms, not just the farmers, but the processors uh, that take agricultural products and export them. To China and many of those companies are listed, but I think and, and so for that you just kind of need to look and see specifically which pro, which companies and sectors are going to uh, face penalties and then make your choices accordingly. But the bigger challenge for most folks, uh, because not everyone is just invests in individual companies and needs to kind of you know step carefully on those and avoid those landmines, is that um, my expectation is the market overall is is affected by talk of a trade war and implementation of a trade war and the sort of contagion effect which takes down all stocks uh, good and bad regardless of whether they're specifically targeted that's the bigger effect uh, and so that means that folks want to look for options uh, where uh, there are 
industries, businesses that aren't are so far out of the line of fire that are safer long term in a in a broader economic downturn. You talked about the potential hit to our portfolios as being short term. We're very long term investors here at the Motley Fool. So does that do I get to sleep a little better? Sure, if you've got a really good mattress, you can put that money under for a while. You're going to be fine. No, no, you don't have to do that. But you do need to think about, um, you know, how would your grandmother invest? Uh, how would uh, others who who really need to depend on this income long term need to protect themselves? Just because, um, in addition to the market's potentially going down, I think you're just even. It's just volatility. There's just going to be a lot of volatility, and it's just you know how much heartburn can you take? Uh, how much? Why do you do you want to have to pay attention every single day? Uh, and so, looking for things that are safer, uh, whether it's bonds or mutual funds or other types of instruments, might be currency, might be gold. Who who knows? <laughs> that doesn't fit under your bed really well, probably. <laughs> so, um, but but safer safer things. Um, there will never be a siren that says all clear uh, as long as we've got leaders in both the U.S. and China who are relatively nationalistic, who are somewhat unpredictable, who themselves have high tolerance for risk. That means everyone else has to have a high tolerance for risk or ways to avoid risk. So I wanted to talk also a little bit about investing in Chinese companies because we here at The Motley Fool, um, we actually have a few recommendations that we've made to our members that are Chinese companies. Um, Baidu, Tencent, JD.com, those are just a few of them. But Chinese companies don't necessarily have the best reputation for uh, honesty, I don't know, <laughs> like transparency. I mean, misrepresentation, misrepresentation and outright fraud is, is a risk to some extent when you're investing in China. But from your experience, I, I, I want you to speak to that a little bit. How concerned should our members be when they are looking at investing specifically in Chinese companies? Outside of the context of a trade war or, or within the context of a potential trade war? I think you want to be very careful, okay. uh, <laughs> particularly if there's an opportunity for you to invest in Chinese companies that are listed in China uh, or in Hong Kong. Um, the corporate governance rules and regulations uh, for China's domestic exchanges are a lot weaker. Um, the, it's not a casino. A casino would be fairer because a casino, <laughs> you know the rules, and they don't change while you're at the table. In China, the, the rules for investing change depending on uh, the day and the levels of anxieties of investors and regulators and companies and what's in the news. So it's, it's really dangerous to invest directly in China. Luckily, um, there's lots of obstacles to doing that because uh, China primarily allows foreigners through uh, large institutions to invest. Uh, there are some other ways around that uh, for, for your very savvy investors, but for the most part, the way you're going to invest directly in Chinese companies are going to be perhaps in Hong Kong, but most likely folks uh, companies that are listed on NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah. And, and I think you know the corporate governance requirements, uh, transparency requirements of, of our markets aren't perfect. Uh, they didn't stop what happened in 2008. Uh, to even your best companies, but nevertheless, it gives you a little bit more information, a little, uh, and outright fraud and deception uh, is is uh, more likely to emerge uh, through Chinese companies that are listed uh, 
outside of, of China. So, so that's a, a general rule. Uh, there are some really, you know, chi because China is growing so fast um, and um, in, in so many different sectors, there's obviously lots of huge opportunities. Ch uh, companies are profitable. They have long-term uh, chances of success. Um, and so uh, it's a smart thing to pay attention to. Uh, to. Uh, there are other ways in which you can invest in um, um, ETFs or mutual funds or American companies that are deeply exposed to China. Uh, for example, like uh, Qualcomm, you know, over half of its sales uh, for this company are in China. So there's other ways that you can, if you if you're worried about the anxieties of of uh, whether or not a Chinese company's profit and loss statement are accurate, or uh, to still be exposed to China with reducing your risk against any individual Chinese company. So if I am thinking about, do I invest in Google or do I invest in Baidu? Should I be able to trust? The financial should I be able to trust the financials that Baidu is putting out as much as I should be able to trust what Google is putting out? Well, um, they've both used the same accounting firms. So and, you're like there so, are there are yeah. crooked people everywhere. Yeah. So you know I don't want to just pick on Baidu. Uh, oh and, no, and I, so, I yeah. did for no particular reason here, but, just because it's a, you know. But I'll, I'll just give you an example of a new company that that people might want to pay attention to, not because I necessarily think it's going to be super successful or profitable or the stock's going up. I never tell, uh, give stock advice. No, we're not asking uh, you. Because, Definitely give stock Yeah, advice. that's really bad. Uh, just ask my mom. Oh. Uh, so, uh, so I stopped doing that about 25 years ago. And uh, knowing something about China doesn't mean you know anything about how to invest uh, in Chinese companies. But just as an example, uh, China's got the fastest growing electric car market. Now, there's never been an electric car company on the face of the world that's been profitable from selling electric cars. They might sell other stuff that helps the company overall be profitable, but usually the electric car business isn't profitable. But components for electric cars can be quite profitable, including the battery. Um, and right now in the world, uh, the, the biggest, most successful, advanced electric uh, battery companies are uh, – uh, Panasonic, LG Chem, uh, and Samsung. Uh, there's others in the supply chain that are uh, doing well, and even some American companies, but those are the biggest sellers right now in Asia. Uh, but uh, China's blocked its market to foreign uh, car battery makers and has been promoting domestic ones. Uh, people have heard of BYD, right? Uh, the company that Warren Buffett invested in a long time ago, which is, prim which is profitable uh, largely for things other than electric cars. Uh, they also make batteries and many other things, buses and stuff that they sell in the United States. Um, but there's a new, another company that has come on the scene called uh, CATL. It's in Fujian province. Uh, CATL, it's in a town called Ningda. And CATL used to, originally was a joint venture with a Japanese company called TDK. Everyone knows TDK because you had the cassettes oh, yeah. that were made by TDK. Yep. But they also were a chemical company and did other things and um, helped uh, CATL get off the ground. They make pretty good bat car batteries now. Uh, the other in uh, And they don't have that foreign competition to face, and China's pushing electric cars as hard as anybody. Uh, this is a currently a non-listed company that is exploring listing. Uh, and if you don't have any foreign competitors – and um, your uh, make a pretty good battery, and just by coincidence, 
Xi Jinping's first job as a party secretary was the, as the party secretary of the county of Ningda, where this company is from. Is there a coincidence? <laughs> it could be a coincidence. I can't say. For, I honestly can't say for sure. But nevertheless, the sort of the stars are aligning for this company. Uh, but again, that depends on Chinese industrial policy. It depends on the corporate governance of this company, and and many other things that could take it in one direction or another. But there's so many different companies like that in China. Whether you're talking in e-commerce or in healthcare and and drug manufacturing and elsewhere. Things that look like are super rising stars, and then all of a sudden they take, go in a different direction. But that's why China is exciting. But it also means that folks need to be careful too. Yeah. Um, so let's end on a super happy positive note because trade war isn't super happy positive. Um, what would you say is one of the best stories you've heard coming out of China lately that people should should keep an eye on? Something we can get excited about in a positive way. Sure. Um, I think you know CA Tail is a really interesting company that. Um, Excites me to to look at and learn about. I have no idea what its commercial performance uh, will be down the road, but um, they're just. I met so many different co- companies in in, um, um, in in the internet space. Um, China's got seven hundred, eight hundred million internet users. Uh, the uh, investors and, and companies. Uh, Entrepreneurship there is is just so so cool because of the, you know, I can't code, write code, uh, but just about everybody else can, and you don't need a lot of money to create an app, and 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 when you've got uh, anything times seven or hundred million, that's a lot of money, uh, and so there's Chinese com- you know, WeChat is uh, which is by Tencent, uh, the communication app, which has so many other things. Uh, I think that's pretty cool, uh, and 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 I think Tencent is a really interesting company. But there's so many small garage-like companies in the internet space. Um, many of them will disappear uh, as as uh, they should that, uh, through creative destruction. And I just love meeting these investors and and what they're doing. I'll just give you one. Ex- let me give you one example of a, a really neat technology. I have no idea what it's going to mean for. Uh, this specific company I met that's developing it. But I went to the Microsoft incubator facility in Beijing, and they support this one company that, that makes a, a, a piece of equipment that you put in the soil or up against a plant tells you the moisture of the plant and the soil. But it also can tell you whether what is going on in terms of the s- nutrients in the soil, uh, pesticides, and other things. So that's cool, yeah. right? Yeah. But uh, cooler... Uh, and why they're cooperating with Microsoft is because you take that technology and you wire, you connect a wireless uh, p- equipment to it that can transmit the data up to a satellite down to the cloud. All right. Now, if you're the farmer, you then can through your phone and see, you know, here's what's going on in my farm. Now, let's say you're the county party secretary and you want to know what the yield is going to be for soybeans in your county. Now you have a better sense of where things are going to go because you know the weather, you know what's going on, uh, you know how it's affecting the crops. Let's say you're the head of the province or you're the head of the country and you want to know what the wheat uh, yield is going to be for this year. You've got more information. Now let's say you're sitting in your apartment in Little Rock, Arkansas, and you invest in commodities. And China's a big commodity producer and you now have a lot more information that's going to tell you what's going to happen with futures. 
-hmm. right? So that's a really cool technology that's being worked on by this company uh, that I met that's uh, in the Microsoft incubator. I have no idea how long it's going to take for it to really have all the different technologies connect. But those are the really type of cool things that even in China, folks are working on. And so even though you have all that top state down stuff, which is depressing, uh, you have all this bottom up stuff <laughs> yeah. at the same time uh, where you can you can get really excited by what people are, are really doing. And, and that's the benefit of China. It's such a big place. You've got all these uh, crazy stories and, and deep concerns about uh, the state. But there's also lots of really cool, uh, smart thinking people. Awesome. Scott, thank you so much for coming into the studio and joining us. This has been a really great chat. Happy to do so. Thanks. As always, The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about here. Do not buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard on the show. Scott begs you, please don't. <laughs> do not. <laughs> but it's still fun to talk about. Thanks again for joining us. Well, that's the show. I want to thank Heather Horton for pitching in today behind the glass. The show will still be edited diplomatically by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>